Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We have been working through this, um, this book, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and this morning we're going to finally finish chapter 1, Lord willing, though I did have thoughts this morning about not quite finishing, just because uh, verse 27 is so rich for us today. Um, but we've been going through this, maybe my 10th message here on the Philippians 1. But we got to finish because we have to get to chapter four, chapter two, verse five, talking about the incarnation, verse six, about Jesus, the Sunday before Christmas. So we're going to plow through this today, Lord willing. I want to just read this text for you. It begins in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Well, when I went to college, I majored in a double major in physics and computer science. Physics was my primary major and computer science was kind of uh, along the way. Um, And one of the things that um, I remember about my physics major is that the emphasis was upon thinking and reasoning and problem solving. As such, the reading load each night was pretty minimal. In fact, I remember just maybe about three or five pages, just kind of one little new concept today and then one little concept the next day and just a little concept the next day. And so just after about three to five hours of reading, then it would be some hours of homework trying to figure out these problems. Um, But I I figured pretty quickly on and uh, that the key to the success in a physics major is to is to know just a few key concepts and like understand them really, 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 really well. Um, so what physics is about. Just, just know that the few kind of, how does gravity work? If you understand that, then you can figure out problems with gravity or electricity or, or magnetism or friction or torque or energy or momentum. Just figure out just that one little thing and, and then understand how to apply it in hundreds of different ways. When you understand that force equals mass times acceleration, then you, you, can, you can work out force problems. And when you understand that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, you can begin to solve some problems of relativity. And when you understand that voltage equals current time resistance, you can figure out the current needed or the, the voltage needed to get the response that you want. You just need to apply them in many different ways. Now, now, you don't need to be a physics major to know that because all of you who have done addition, know how that is. If you have ever added 2 plus 2, you know that equals, help me now, 4 normally. All right, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And you get that in your brain and you got that. And when you have that, think about how many times you said 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Or once you memorize your, your addition tables, and you can, add it, you can add up everything. And just by a few, um, a few concepts, you can add everything. Well, that's how physics work. That's how I was helped. But, you know, it's interesting. I went to seminary that didn't help me very much because my first year at seminary, I was trying to find just the key concepts that work for everything. And the Bible doesn't work that way. Literature doesn't work that way. There's not just one key concept that can help you understand God. 
There's not one key concept that will help you understand the Trinity or the similarities and differences between the church and Israel. You need to start reading and reading and start to know quite a few things. It can be daunting sometimes. I didn't understand that my first year of seminary. Second year of seminary, I kind of got it and started reading uh, a lot more. Well, we come here to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. This is, this is like a physics principle. In fact, I would argue that if you catch this one principle... Here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, you will know everything of what God requires of you as a follower of Jesus. How's that for a statement? You know this one verse, you know everything that God would require you as a follower of Jesus. You follow this command all the days of your life. You'll have no regrets standing before the Lord, but you'll hear Him say, well done, well done, good and faithful one. Well, what's the concept? It comes right here in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There it is. Just that one concept. To conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's God's calling upon our life. It's God's calling upon your life. It's a believer in Jesus Christ. This concept here is a little bit like when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says... The whole law and prophets depend upon these two commands. It's because you show me a command in the Bible, I'll show you how it either relates to love to God or it relates to love towards others. That's what Jesus boiled everything down. You can take any of the Ten Commandments and apply them. You either do not worship any other gods. Right? Your love for the Lord is so much and God is so attractive, you have no desire even to pursue other gods. Don't steal. right? Because you want to love others, you would have them... Love you. You love your neighbor as yourself. You don't want people taking your things, so you wouldn't take those things. You can hinge everything. And for the Christian after the cross, it comes right here. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you understand this, there's no need for any other command in the Bible. It will teach you to understand how to act, what to do. I mean, to understand... The, way, the principles behind the way we're, the world works, you can put a man on the moon. And if you under, understand and grasp the significance of this statement, I would say that you would know what the Lord wants you to do. Now, it takes some practice in physics to figure out physics problems. It takes some practice in life to apply exactly what a, a life worthy of the gospel looks like. But if you grasp it, this core concept will help you in your daily life. In fact, that's what I think Paul is getting at when he says only. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there's the first word there in most translations. Monon. Monos. Only. This is like the only thing. The only thing you need to know. The only thing you need to do. This is the most important thing I have to tell you, Paul says. In fact, if you look carefully at the book of Philippians, you'll find that this is the first command in the entire book. We've gone through all of chapter 1. And you'll look in vain for a command in any of those verses. He begins with a greeting. No command there. He begins by expressing his thanks to God in verses 3 through 5. No command there. He expresses his heart of care for the Philippians in verses 6 through 8. There's no command there. He prays for them in 9 through 11. No command there. Then he tells about his, his perspective of his imprisonment. It's actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. No command there. He tells him of his willingness to die and his resolve to live on to serve those uh, who God has brought in his life. Verses 19 through 26. But here for the first time, 
He says the command. Live worthy of the gospel. That is the title of my message this morning. That is the main point in many ways of the book of, of Philippians. We have seen the theme of Philippians is this. Rejoice in the gospel. But fundamentally, this is how you rejoice in the gospel. By living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Right? When you hear the gospel, what's a manner worthy of the gospel is to believe it. And when you learn more about the gospel, right, you trust in it more and more. When you have opportunity, you, you speak about it. You spread the gospel. When you have opportunity, you give to spread the gospel. When you hear the gospel spreading, you rejoice now, in every way. It's just responding to the gospel in a right way. And in Philippians, we see that those response there is rejoicing in the gospel. That's what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. This past week, Yvonne and I had a, an opportunity to put this into practice. Um, through some circumstances, we stumbled upon a, a website of a, of a church plant in DeKalb. Mom and Dad, I'm not sure you know about this church plant. But uh, I grew up in DeKalb, was there for nine years. We're integral starting a church, Kishwaukee Bible Church in DeKalb. And uh, in God's providence, that's the church then that sent our family up here to start Rock Valley Bible Church about 12 years ago. And uh, we heard about this church in DeKalb. We didn't know anything about it. And so we clicked right on the, on the, the website. And there, front and center in this web page, is the building where they meet in. 425 Fisk. Now for us, 425 Fisk is like a, it's like hallowed ground kind of. It was just a precious place. It was like, Tim, you were there, right? Lance, you were there, right? It's kind of a dirge of a building, I guess. It's not real nice, but God worked wondrous ways in that place. It's quite a bit smaller even than what we have here. Maybe half half the size and we hit fit twice the number of people we have here in this room right now. I mean, it was an exciting time. Uh, we had a, a balcony there as well. And, and I remember, right, during the songs, uh, parents would be standing up and back and then the kids would clear out and they'd fill, fill the chairs. We had chairs alongside here, chairs alongside here. Because it's not like we had too many people, but it's because the place was small and special and uh, it's what we could afford and what God gave us is a wonderful thing. But here's this other church, like they're using our church building. It's what like, like now Kishwaukee Bible Church sold that building. I, I knew that. I didn't know they sold it to another church. And so it's kind of kind of like, woo, here it is. And um, something was very strange about that. Here's what the website said, though. We are as a new church in DeKalb, Illinois. So for introductions, we want to keep it short. We are a new church about one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole story of Jesus Christ, perfect life, his substitutionary death, burial, resurrection, reign as king and hopeful soon coming. We're excited about how the gospel changes us in our worship of our God, causes us to love each other and to be loved by others and to be used by Him for mission to proclaim the good news of the gospel to our city and to the cities of the world. It doesn't get better than that. I mean, they're, they're about the gospel. It's an Acts 29 church plant uh, doing good things. And we, we rejoiced at that church there just of what, what they're doing. And that's, that's part of like, like rejoicing the gospel, which is hear this thing, seeing something good happen, seeing that they're using our building and saying, oh, wonderful, press on, go well. That's, that's one way to live worthy of the gospel. The rest of the book of Philippians is all about how to live worthy of the gospel. In fact, here's my argument. If you would go to any other command in Philippians, it would all come back right here to walking worthy of the gospel. Because this is the one key concept, the one key principle that if you learn and practice how to apply it, will help for everything. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul's talked this way. In fact, even 
even in the book of Ephesians. Right, turn back there. It's just one, one book before. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It is significant that when Paul wrote Philippians, he was under house arrest in Rome. He wrote the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four books. This was one of the books he wrote while he was there. We, we don't have time to kind of survey the book, but it all starts here in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Chapter 1 tells of these wonderful blessings. Right, teenagers? Right? We've been going over this Wednesdays, nights. We've been looking at that. And the second half of chapter 1, these, these blessings are so awesome that he prays that you might understand them. In chapter 2, he speaks about the, the Gospel. We were dead in our sins, but God is the one who made us alive. And, and we as a people, we're, we're far away from the promises of God, but God has brought us near through the blood of Christ. And this mystery has been made known to us. Chapter 3, verse 6, The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. While we at one time were, were apart from God, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope without God in this world, now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul prays that we might, verse 19 of chapter 3, know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God Right, you want to be filled up with all the fullness of God? Then know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You can't know it. Now, we can know it in part. We can't know it in full. That's what Paul is saying. But we can understand God sending His Son to die for our sins, to reconcile us to God. We can understand that. But, and we can understand some of the extent of the love that God loved us, but we can't understand the, the full extent of that. But, but there's the Gospel in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Paul, Paul goes through it. It lays it out. These wonderful blessings we have. Praying that we'd understand it. And God has, has taken us a lost life. Bringing us, reconciling us to Himself. And therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what he says. Therefore, in light of all that I've said. This, by the way, is the first command in Ephesians. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And what's he talking about there? The calling with which you've been called. He's talking about the gospel that you've, you've been called to, that you've come to believe in. Walk worthy of that. It's the same phraseology that, that Paul uses here in, chapter, in Philippians. Turn back there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and, and I would argue that in Ephesians... Everything that Paul instructs us to do in chapters 4, 5, and 6 all come back to walking worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Similar in the book of Colossians. He spends the first chapter and a half talking about the supremacy of Christ. And then he says, chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you've believed in Him, as you've trusted Him, as you've come to place your faith, just, just continue to walk that way. Don't think, okay, now I'm saved, now I walk a different way. No, now you're saved, now you believe in Jesus, now you keep walking in that same way. It all comes back to that. All the commands in Colossians, I would argue, goes back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, which is really like Philippians 1.27, which is really like Romans 12, 1 and 2. After 11 chapters and more than 300 verses talking about the Gospel, just laying it out there about our, our sin and justification, redemption, and, and how uh, Christ solved the problem that Adam caused 
and their battle with sin and our, our security in Christ and God's sovereign plan for salvation. After explaining all the mercies of God in, in, in all those chapters, he comes to chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I believe that verse is the same right here. Is it walk worthy of the mercies of God? Right. And how do you do that? You just you give yourself and you give your body to serve the Lord completely. And I think that that's right here where it says in chapter one, verse twenty-seven: conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, in in Ephesians, it said walk worthy of the gospel. I think these are essential parallels, though many. Commentators have pointed out the, the slight difference here that the word conduct yourselves is a unique word in the New Testament. It only, only appears twice. The noun form appears, appears once, but it's not a hard word to, to understand. Politiuo comes from, it lives, means literally to live as a citizen. From, from polis, city, Minneapolis, okay? A polis is a city, so a, a, be a city liver. Live as a city. It's used once here, it's used also in Acts 23, verse 1, where Paul says, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to, up to this day. He, he, he was speaking to people. He said, like, I've lived my life as a citizen, as a faithful citizen with a clear conscience up to today. The noun form is found only one other time in the Bible. It's found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. You can go over there. Here it is. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you get the idea of a citizen. And so Paul is calling us here basically to live as a, a faithful citizen, a, a faithful, responsible representative of our heavenly kingdom. We've been saved by the gospel, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13. So now let's live. In light of that, let's be a responsible citizen of our heavenly citizenship. You know, a few weeks ago, Darren and I traveled to India, and in order to get there, we needed to have our passports. And uh, our passport is proof that we are citizens of the United States. And with it come some privileges. If you mess with us, you have to mess with the military of the United States. And no country wants to do that. Except China, maybe right now in the EC. But, and Iran. And maybe some others. Some rogue nations in South America. But, but I'm just saying that this comes with some privileges. Is If they would uh, kidnap us or hijack us or, or bring something, there, there would be some consequences from the, the State Department. So people, people know that. But there's also some responsibility as well. We are citizens of the United States. And as citizens of the United States, we ought to conduct ourselves as worthy members of our country. Now, not everybody does that. But as representatives of the country, we sought to do that. And, and with Darren and I also, we wanted to go as representatives from Rock Valley Bible Church to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of that and the parallels of our passage is clear. Listen, we're citizens of heaven. We have privileges and responsibilities. We have privileges of being children of God. We have sins forgiven. We have been reconciled to God. We've been adopted by God. In fact, our fighter verse this week, we've been going through, we threw at the prayer meeting, just talked about it, Phil talked about it. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 
It's a, a privilege that we have to be called the child of God. And chapter 1, verse 27 is, is simply calling us right, to, to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Live in a manner worthy of our citizenship. Live in a manner worthy in a responsible way of what God has given us. So the big question here is this. What does it mean to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked because my first point is going to answer that. Here it is. Live worthy of the Gospel, first of all, in unity. Let's read the entire verse. Maybe you can pick up some unity things there. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I trust you saw there the the focus on unity, standing firm in one spirit. There it is. We're, we're, We're together, standing with one spirit, striving together with one mind, standing firm with one spirit. Striving together with one mind. When Paul speaks about the life worthy of the gospel of Christ, catch this, he speaks about unity. Over in chapter 2, he'll pick up the same thing. It's kind of still in his, still in his mind. In many ways, it's a, it's a bad chapter break because it, it just kind of keeps going. If, if you look there in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Four times in this one verse, he speaks about unity. Same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So you got to catch this. This is the first thing that Paul mentions about living a life worthy of the gospel. He talks about unity in the church. He talks about it here in verse 27. He's going to pick up that theme then in chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4. Now, that surprised me. Right? So you go through the Bible, oftentimes you say, okay, what's, what's the surprises? That's where you're going to really um, glean a lot from your Bible study. And this, this is a surprise. I don't, I don't naturally think, okay, a life worthy of the gospel means let's live in unity among the body. I don't naturally think that. I, here's what I naturally think. I think, okay, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's live a life consistent with our calling. He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So let's let's live for God. He lived for us. He died for us. So let's live for him. That's what I think. Live a, a worthy life means to represent our Lord Jesus Christ well. As so I go out, I'm a representative of my king. And so a, a worthy life as a citizen is to represent our country well. A worthy life of Christ is to represent our king well so that we don't bring any any um, blight upon Jesus by the way that we act. That's what I think when I think about a worthy life. I think about obeying His voice, doing what He says. I mean, if He's the one that that we're calling Lord and we're submitting to Him as our our Savior, what, what He tells us, then we do. That's what I think about living a life worthy of the Gospel. It means praising the One who's redeemed us. Corporate worship. Individual worship. Reading the Bible, right? Praising God or telling others of the salvation that we've experienced. I think that's living worthy of the gospel. Expressing our thanks to the Lord for salvation. Willingly sacrificing our life for others. I think that's, that's what it means. I think it means we trust the Lord in all circumstances. We're coming upon difficulties and living worthy of the gospel says this. That if, if God has solved our biggest problem, 
of our sin before him. Can't he solve our little problems like finances or relational difficulties? Can't I can't I trust him in those things? That's what I think about living a life worthy the gospel of Christ. I think it means confessing my sins to the Lord, confessing my sins to other people. I think it means right praying to the Lord, communing with the Lord, learning more about Him in His Word. I think it means that we seek His glory and not our, our, my own. I, I'm not about me. I'm, about, I'm all about God. It means I put no confidence in the work of, of my hands, of everything that, that I would do. It means that I would think on the things that God would have me think upon that, that are pleasing to Him. And all those things are true. All those things are walking worthy of the gospel of Christ, but, but when Paul put pen to paper, that's not the first thing he, he talked about. He, his focus is on community. He describes a community of people in a church that are standing firm in one spirit, knowing what they believe, standing on their faith, not wavering on the gospel. Paul knew churches that wavered on the gospel. Church at Galatia. Churches throughout there, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there's some who are coming and disturbing you with this new gospel. Paul, Paul knew people who weren't standing firm with one spirit in the faith. To those in Philippi, he says, stand firm in one spirit, embrace the gospel, believe it. But, but I think that standing firm in one spirit goes merely beyond just believing the gospel together. I think it's talking even about a, a unity together. And Paul had seen disunified churches, divided churches. Church of Corinth comes to my mind. He wrote them in chapter 1, verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. He, he knew churches which were divided. And in Corinth, of course, there were some who were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And, and they're like, no, 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 no. Christ isn't divided. Christ is united. Let's not be a divided church. Let's be a united church. To those in Philippi, he says, live in unity and harmony with one another. Don't divide. Stand firm in one spirit. Uh, I think that's what he's getting at. The church in Philippi, united in the gospel. I think the picture is this. Pictures of, of people locking arms together, standing firm, kind of ready for the, the onslaught of what's coming. Solidarity with each other. In fact, Paul used the same uh, same terminology in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brother, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Right? Stand firm there together, regardless of what comes. And you see that in the early church. Before Pentecost, they were all with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Just you can see them arm in arm, corporately saying, God, we don't know what's going on. You told us to sit here and wait in Jerusalem and we're just, we're just seeking You. We're together here. And after Pentecost, when thousands believe, we, we, we read of that same unity. Day by day, continuing one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all people. Just praising God together. Eating together. Daily basis with others. It's a picture of the early church. Unity and solidarity there. When Peter and John were arrested, threatened release from the Sanhedrin, the early church prayed together and, and rejoiced together, so much so that the place where they'd gathered was shaken, Acts 4.32. It's the picture of unity in the early church. Those were standing together. Even they were selling their property 
for those who had need. There was not a needy person among them. Acts 4, verse 34. That's a picture of the early church. When Peter was in prison, right, they're, they're in, in Mary's home. Many gathered together praying, just saying, oh, Peter's in prison, but let's pray. Let's, let's really seek the Lord about this. Let's seek help. They were united in spirit, enjoying fellowship with one another, supporting one another when the attacks came upon the church. They had each other's back, if you will. They were a united church. But, but, but Paul even used another phrase here. That might even give you a picture of defense. Kind of like, okay, we're standing for it. We're buckling. But the church, a unified church, was marching forward. And a unified church must march forward. And that's what we see here in verse 27. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. This imagery comes from the athletic word. Soon athleo is the Greek word here. Soon means with. Athleo, from athletic. We are being athletic together. We are striving together. We are competing together on the same team. We are on the Gospel team. Let's live worthy of that team. And even the most casual observer knows a little bit about sports. Okay? Even Dirk, as much as he admitted from Germany, would know a little bit about American football. Okay? A little bit, anyway. Right? Picture the offensive lineman. Right? They're lined up, they're down in the trenches, right? And, and they're all getting ready and, and the play has been called and they all know their assignments and then the snap is taken and they all just push forward with all their strength to either either protect the quarterback or, or create that hole so the running back can, can run through. And what's very interesting, when the running back scores the touchdown, what does he do? Woohoo, look at how good I am! I scored a touchdown! He is buying dinner, though, for the offensive linemen, so he, he, he knows that. But he ought to be like, hey, you guys are the ones who did it, right? They were a team just pushing together, striving together. And I know this. If the offensive lineman didn't block, <laughs> no touchdowns for him, buddy. It's just how it's, it's not going to work. See, victory on the football field comes only with hard work, dedication, and teamwork. If, if the offensive line isn't coordinated, it's not going to work. Dissension in the locker room. Causes dissension on the field, it doesn't work. Uncoordination on the field means loss for the team. And Paul here is calling for unity of the gospel. We all be on the same page, all doing our part. Right? Linemen have a different part than a quarterback, than a running back, than a wide receiver, than the tight end. Everybody's got a different part, but, but doing the same part for the ultimate goal to win the championship. And that's the picture that Paul uses here. Striving together. In fact, uh, I, I looked in... Um, in one lexicon, it said, Sun athleo is a synonym with sun agonizomai. With agonizomai, agony. Like agonizing together. Like, like, like the, to, to sweat and blood and to the point of exhaustion and tiredness for your goal. That's what Paul calls us to. And so the simple question is this, do you know anything about that at Rock Valley Bible Church? Are you in the trenches? Are you on the team? Do you know your assignment? Are you you're going full bore at your block? Now it, it looks different. I'm I'm not I'm not asking us to to go maul down each other, okay, after church, okay? I'm actually asking you to love each other with a love that's a supernatural love. John thirteen, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Does that describe your relationship with people here at this church? Do you have a love for 
one another. You can't do that just by Sunday morning. It's not how it works. You do that by Sunday morning and through the week. Communicating, calling, being with each other. That, that, that's how you do it. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about an interlocking love that, that is committed to each other. That, that's all on the same page. And what's the page? The page is rejoicing in the gospel, right? Get, spreading the gospel, believing and trusting in the gospel, seeing it work out in our lives. Because with any team, there's conflict. And in a football team, the conflict might be who gets to play and who's sitting on the bench and who's the backup. There might be some of the conflict in the church. Well, I want to do this. Well, I want to do this. I want to do this. I don't want to do that. It's a matter of all putting together. It's called an interlocking love. And sometimes there are personal conflicts, right? Sometimes there are um, economic disparities and differences or, or relationships or backgrounds are, are different. And I just remind you, the church in Philippi was incredibly diverse. It, it started with a businesswoman named Lydia, the seller of fine fabrics. I picture her as a, as a, as a high-standing woman who went out there and sold these nice, delicate fabrics. The only other person we know that was saved in uh, Philippi was the jailer. I picture him as kind of like a rough guy. You know, because the guys get in there, he's got to be strong and stern and, and mean perhaps and just be able to shackle them and put them down there and uncaring and have, a, have this hard heart, this bold face. And, and you put those two people together in a church, you think they're... They're as different as night and day. And then maybe the only other person we know in Philippi um, who was possibly saved was a slave girl who had the demon cast out of her. And uh, some commentators think that she became a Christian. The Bible's silent on that. But she had a demon. Paul cast a demon out of her. She's different. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she was there at the church as well. And so you have this demon slave girl, right? this at-risk at child if you will. And you put that all together and it's not like they're all socioeconomic, same cultural background. No, they're all different. As different as different can be. The unity of Philippian church wasn't dependent upon social structures or common backgrounds. It was dependent upon and energized by the Gospel of Christ as people lived worthy of the Gospel of Christ. And notice also that the unity that Paul's talking about here isn't dependent upon Paul. He says this, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, I think this, unity is the right thing to do. Unity is the way to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whether Paul made it to the Philippians or not, in fact, you remember last week when we were looking at verses 21 through 26, Paul's just talking about, I, I don't know if I'm going to live. I, I'm, I'm ready to die. I want to die because that's to be with Christ. But, but to remain in the flesh is better for you. And so uh, I'm convinced of this. I know that I'll remain and continue with you all. But there still was this doubt. In fact, that's even the, the doubt right here. He says, I, I might be killed or I might come and see you. Because I don't know. I might be put to death by the Roman government, but I... I think I'm going to live. Everything looks like I'm, I'm going to live. They're going to set me free. But Paul says this, whether I make it to see you or not, it makes no difference. Whether I die or not, it makes no difference. If I come, I want to join with you and rejoice in your unity over the Gospel. If I can't come, say if I'm delayed or if I'm killed in prison, 
If I'm delayed, I want to hear of you that you're standing firm. Otherwise, in heaven, I want to understand and know and hear the stories of how you stood firm in the gospel. And I say this, church unity isn't dependent upon the leadership of the church. Now, I know what it's like as a pastor of the church to enter into the presence of people and have them change. I can't tell you how many people over the years um, have sworn in my presence and then they go, <gasps> he's a pastor. Like I've never heard those words before. Okay, I went to a secular college. All right, I've heard those words. I played on athletic teams at secular college. I've played those words into my shame. I've used some of those words before. But I say, say this, people are like, <gasps> and they apologize to me. Oh, sorry, pastor. Sorry, pastor. I'm like... Whether I come and see or remain absent, I'm like, it doesn't really matter. You're in the presence of God all the time. I'm a little factor. God's a big factor. But I know what my presence does to people sometimes. And unity isn't a leadership-driven thing. Unity is really a grassroots movement. It must come from the body. It must come from the body. All of us standing firm with one mind, making great efforts to obtain and keep the unity and we'll talk more about that next week as we look at verses 1 through 4. 1 through 5. 5 is the hinge verse of chapter 2. But unity must come whether Paul's present or not. Unity must come whether the leaders of the church are present or not. And when behavior changes in the presence of a pastor, something's wrong. In fact, I've shared with you a bit of the struggles we've had at Rock Valley Bible Church about five, eight years ago, six years ago. I'm not sure it's it's getting longer ago. But I remember sometimes after church, and we after church love to mingle. It's a time where we can get to know people and, and, and understand how we can love them and serve them. I remember a couple of occasions seeing some guys off talking in a corner like, oh, let, 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 me go, let me go talk with them. And I get there and all of a sudden, you know what they're talking about? Well, I don't know because all of a sudden they're like quiet and they're kind of little. Well, what should we talk about now? And I'm like, mm, something's wrong. I, I don't know for sure, but I just sense the flavor of some of that going on. But Paul is, is, is saying this. Is that, listen, whether I'm there or not, you need to be unified. And um, when disunity amongst among, is among the ranks, the church is headed for trouble. And more importantly, though, than the church headed for trouble is this, is that such actions are not consistent with the gospel of Christ. Disunifying actions are not consistent with the gospel of Christ. You want to walk worthy of the gospel? Well, understand that God has forgiven you, so you should extend that forgiveness to others. Because in a church and people, there's going to be frictions, there's going to be conflicts, there's going to be tensions. And the best way is to forgive and, and let loose and let go and, and love despite. That's how you overcome. Are you living a life worthy of the gospel in unity? Second point, quickly go through that and we'll transition into the Lord's Supper. Live worthy of the gospel. Here it is, without fear. In verse 28, Paul, peer, Paul brings up the fact that there are many who are opposing this unity. They're opposing this life worthy of the gospel. Look at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So now, these opponents are brought up. Sometimes that might be surprising. If, if, if you have a church unified, why would there be opponents? Well, that's how this world works. 
Opponents are inside the church. Opponents are outside the church. That opponents are inside the church is no surprise. Judas betrayed Jesus, having walked with him for three years, having seen everything about him. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that after his departure, savage wolves would come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says this, but from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw disciples after them. I think he's saying this, that among you elders right here, there's a Judas among you. And you're going to have fellow elders that rise up. People who should be examples of godliness rising up and causing divisions. Leadership. Demas deserted Paul. At one time a fellow worker, the Apostle Paul. Colossians 4.14, Philemon 24. He was right there with Paul, sending his greetings. And then he deserts Paul because he loved the present world. uh, Opponents are inside the church. It's no surprise that there are opponents outside the church. No surprise either. Either when Jesus walked the earth, he was hated by the religious establishment. He was killed, crucified by the Roman authorities. Peter and John were flogged by those who refused to believe the gospel. Stephen was stoned to death for confronting unbelief. James was put to death with a sword. And wherever Paul went, opposition came. Paul and Barnabas, driven out of Pisidian Antioch, driven out of Iconium, stoned and left for dead at Lystra, asked to leave Philippi, asked to leave Thessalonica, faced enough resistance in Corinth that Paul was was ready to leave from Corinth, but a divine vision that said, no, Paul, you stay, for I have many people in this city and you will suffer no harm. So he's like, oh, that's good. (laughs) So he stayed 18 months there in the city of Corinth. As he wrote, he's under house arrest because of opposition from outside the church. The church of Jesus Christ always had its opponents, some inside, some outside. Now, it's difficult to know exactly who these opponents were. You read the rest of Philippians, you see two verses where opponents are mentioned. Chapter 3, verse 2. It's talking about the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. He tells... In chapter 3, verse 19, of the enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. That's all that we know in the book of Philippians about the enemies. We we do know from Acts 16 that there were enemies in the the city who hated Paul because he cast this demon out of the slave girl and they couldn't use her anymore for divination. But when we see opponents here, we don't know who they are. It's difficult to know, even in chapter 3. Are these the same groups of people in chapter 3, verse 2 and chapter 3, verse um, 19? Are they inside the church or outside the church? It looks like there's some religion here because they talk about a false circumcision. Right? So maybe there was, this, is this a Judaizing circumcision? Just trying to keep the law to make it? Or are these, are these Jews who've been circumcised but without faith? Paul seems to be heartbroken here in verse 18 of chapter 3. He says that they, um, I'm telling you, even weeping now that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. It, it seems like you weep for those you know well. Maybe these people were in the church and then they left the church. Maybe it, I just say this. We don't know who these opponents are in verse 28. But it doesn't matter. What matters is how you face such opponents, whether they be inside the church or outside the church, whether it be religious or whether it be secular. What matters is that we're not alarmed by such opponents. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't like like don't be. And I just put it this way. Right. Live worthy of the gospel without fear. Don't fear about those who oppose you. Don't fear about those who oppose the gospel. Don't fear what they might bring upon you. 
Rather, Paul says this, okay, rather than fearing, just, just look at it from an eternal perspective. Just, just kind of flip your, your, your gaze differently, right? Shoot from another camera angle and, and, and shoot from heaven and just see. So what, is, what does it mean that you are, are, are walking holy and, and you're doing what's right, you're living a life worthy of the gospel, and then there are people who oppose you? What does that mean? Well, all, all that means is that uh, the, the line has been drawn. And say, well, well here's the line. I'm, I'm walking in a gospel way, and you're walking contrary to that. I am identifying myself as a sign. I'm, I'm from heaven following the Lord, and you're identifying yourself as against me. You're clearly on the other side of God. That's what Paul is saying. It is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. When Jesus lived and came upon the earth, He lived a perfect life. He extended kindness to all, healing all who were hurting, preaching good news to the oppressed, and people were opposed to Him. And what was it? That was the battle lines were drawn. Jesus was sent from God, walking righteously, and they hated the righteous one. The, the Pharisees knew that He came from God. Nicodemus, listen to his quote. He was the ruler of the Jews, right? The, the teacher of Israel. He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John 3, 2. The religious leaders knew that Jesus made the blind man see. No way of getting around it. They tried to get around it. They, they knew that... Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and they wanted to kill Jesus because everyone's going to follow Jesus because He's doing these great signs. The, the fact that Jesus did signs was not in dispute. They hated the light. That was the issue. Instead of believing in Jesus, heeding His words, they resisted Him and killed Him. And basically then it was clear what side of eternity that they were on. They opposed the Lord. That's why the apostles, when they were flogged, in order not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, you remember what they did? They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They're like, woohoo! The battle lines have been drawn and we're on the right side because the, they hate us! Woohoo! We're there! We're in! It's a sign of salvation for us. Right? Is that 28? It's a sign of destruction for them, yes, but it's a sign of salvation for you. So you have no need to fear because you are on the right side. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before I hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. So if you are walking in a manner worthy of the, of the gospel of Christ and people at, church, at, at work hate you, it's like, hmm, battle line's been drawn. Destruction for them, salvation for me. Because I'm the light, they hate the light. Those who oppose the gospel demonstrate themselves to be against the Lord. Those who are walking worthy of the gospel and being opposed demonstrate to be for the Lord. In fact, listen, this is how God planned it all. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. First of all, verse 20, 29, our salvation is a gift of God. <clears throat> when anyone believes in Jesus, it's all the kindness of God. It's only because the Lord gives belief. That's what it says. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in Him. If any of us ever believe, it's because God gave us faith to believe. That's what makes salvation all of God. That's why we can say, for by grace we've been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works that no one can boast. And the only way we can boast that it's not of works is as if it's all of God for us. 
And so God gives us faith. You read through the book of Acts and several times. So I taught through the book of Acts in India. I was reminded of this again and again. God grants repentance. God grants repentance. God grants repentance. Acts 11, verse 18. Well, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or Acts 18, 11. I have many people in this city. They need to hear the gospel. I'm, I'm going to give them faith, but they need to hear so I can give them faith. And, and we rejoice in these things. Let us glory in the doctrines of grace. Let's glory in the marvels of the grace of God. Let's glory in the cross. That's what the cross tells us. But let's realize as much as salvation is a gift to us, so is suffering. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe, but also to suffer. Salvation is a gift of God to us. Suffering is a gift of God to us. Let us realize that. Let us realize James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials. Because the trials are going to do something in your life that's going to help conform you to the image of God. You ask people who have gone through trials and, and post-trials, what's their testimony? That was good for my soul because it was then that I cried out to the Lord. So Psalmist says, Psalm 119.67, I forget what verse it is. Before I was afflicted, then I went astray, but now I keep your word. The affliction was the very thing that caused the psalmist to keep the word of God. God is totally in control of the suffering that comes and He will bring that so to conform you to the image of His Son. That, that's the way He does it. He, he saves us by a gift of His grace. And He brings suffering into our lives a gift by His grace. Now, for the Philippians, we don't know exactly what they were suffering. However, we do have a clue because verse 30 says that you're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Okay, so what conflict did they see in Paul? Well, they saw him come into Philippi. They saw him cast this demon out of this slave girl and they saw him being wrongfully accused, being beaten, even though he's a Roman citizen, being put in jail unjustly and cast out of the city totally for just following the Lord. They saw that. Wrongly accused, beaten, thrown in prison, asked to leave the city. And Paul says here that you're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. I would not be surprised if there were people in prison in Philippi for the gospel. Like, oh, you joined up with that Paul figure and you're taking this uh, business away from us as well. There's bad news for you. We're throwing you in jail too. Because they're experiencing the same conflict. Or maybe it's the same conflict with the same people. The same people that hated Paul maybe hate us. But that's par for the course. It's to be expected for followers of Christ. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Timothy 4.12 this is the judgment, Jesus said, that lights come into the world. The men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. People's deeds are evil. So as your light shines, people don't like the light. You just, you just try to confront someone of their sin and see how much people like the light. They don't. And it'll come back on you. Paul says, listen, you're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. And you're experiencing the same conflict which now you hear to be in me. And what's, what, where's Paul now? He's in prison. Under house arrest in Rome. And so I think that probably some of these people are maybe in prison, suffering, but they need to realize this. 
is that God gave them that suffering and God placed them in prison. And what's so encouraging about that is if God places you in prison, you're going to be there exactly as long as God wants you there. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.13 is so true. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, will provide a way of escape. Because He's in control of the difficulties and trials and temptations coming in your life. So live worthy of the Gospel. Live worthy of the Gospel in unity. Live worthy of the Gospel without fear. Well, we're going to transition now to the, the Lord's Supper. And how appropriate this is for us. We're thinking about walking worthy of, of the gospel. Turn over to First Peter chapter two. Here's a good corollary thought that, that brings us brings us right there. First Peter chapter two. Verse twenty one. Paul says, This is our, our call Peter says, This is our calling. First Peter two twenty one. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. In other words, we become like our leader, right? And as our leader was crucified and suffered, that's what He calls us to. That's what Anyone who follows Christ, that's what He calls them to. If anyone wants to come after Me, let him take up his cross, deny himself and follow Me. He calls us to a death as we start. Here's a purpose. Since Christ suffered for you, He left an example for you to follow in His steps. And, and how did He suffer? He suffered well. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. While being reviled, He did not revile in return, but while suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And that's exactly the same way how we ought to live our lives as well. We ought to entrust ourselves to Him who judges righteously. That's what we're to do. That's what the Philippians are called to do. That, that's a life worthy of the Gospels when suffering comes is to suffer rightly and to suffer well. Not to retaliate, go back, but to entrust yourself completely to the Lord. And here's the reality of the Gospel, right? He Himself bore our sin in His body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you were healed. Christ Jesus took our sins in His body on the cross 2,000 years ago. And before He did that, He, he prophesied of that to His disciples in the, the Lord's Supper. He, he took bread and broke it and He said, this is My body broken for you. Right? He Himself bore sins in His body on the cross for us. And, and then, he, then He took the cup and he, he passed that cup around. He said, this is the blood of the New Covenant. A cup of the new covenant, which is for you. And Jesus spilt blood and died for us. He says, drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to remember Jesus. We're going to remember the gospel that he died for us. It's really, so I think about the other, the other theme here of our text this morning. It's a, it's a time really to be united. Because we all eat the bread together. We all drink of the cup together it just says that we we're expressing our unity we're eating his body we're drinking his blood we are remembering the sacrifice of the lord jesus christ 
And so this, by the way, is for believers. If you're a believer, I encourage you to confess your sins and take this. If you're not a believer in Christ, I just encourage you to just let the, let the bread pass, let the cup pass. This is for us who believe in Jesus. Say, yes, I, I, I understand, I believe the gospel, and I desire to walk worthy of that gospel. Let us unite as a church in doing these things. So I'll pray, and the music team can come up, and we'll sing a song as we distribute the elements. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that uh, of anything, this one prayer request that you would grant that we at Rock Valley Bible Church would walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord, that you would would help us to know how to apply that command in all things. And, and maybe we've been shocked a bit today by thinking about how, how central unity is to that. I, I pray that we would seek unity here with one another. God, where relationships are strained, I pray by your grace you might cure those and heal those. I know how hard a brother offended is to be one, and yet I pray that the gospel would prevail in those circumstances. I pray that we'd be unified in our, in our mission. God, thank you that Darren and I could go to India as representatives of this church to, to, to do what we can to encourage the, the people there to train pastors and Bible students and train children and to encourage the children. I, I thank you even for the teenagers who right now are thinking about mission trips so we can send them out here. I think about how the the churches behind things we're doing, whether that's to the kids club, reaching out, or, or seeking to be accountable with each other's lives in our, our small groups, or seeking to be faithful at, at work or where we are, or being faithful to uh, share meals together. God, I, I pray that you would continue that unity. We, we know, God, how precious that is. I know how precious that is of, of facing that just five, six years ago, the difficulties that we had when people are opposing that unity. And I pray by your grace, grassroots movement, God, you would keep and sustain that unity. I'm not perfect. Darren and Phil aren't perfect. Ray's not perfect. Other influential people here at the church aren't perfect. God, we, we need your grace. God, to love despite our imperfections. And thank you, that's what the Gospel teaches us. Jesus died for us when we're sinners, not when we're righteous. And so help us in these things, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.